0: Welcome to AMDG, I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. Tanya Tetlow is a trailblazer. She's the first female president in the history of Loyola University New Orleans, she's the first layperson to serve in that role, and her first ever job was working for Representative Lindy Boggs, who was the first woman to represent the state of Louisiana in Congress. As President Tetlow's second academic year in leadership gets underway this month, I asked her about the challenges Loyola New Orleans is facing and what makes the university special. We talked about her unique career path from federal prosecutor to university president and how Loyola draws on its diversity as a major source of strength. And stay tuned until the end of the show for our 20 questions segment when President Tetlow reveals what she'd say to Pope Francis if she only had time for one sentence. Before we get started, I'd like to ask a favor. Please subscribe to the show wherever you listen. And if you could, leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for that, and thanks for joining us. Well, President Tanya Tetlow, thank you so much for joining us on AMDG. Uh, We're about to get going here with your second academic year as president of Loyola University New Orleans. So how did your first year go? What were some of the the things you learned as your first year as president?
1: It was pretty wonderful. Um, Everyone welcomed me with open arms. This is literally the friendliest community I have ever been part of. And it's the experience of doing everything in the academic cycle for the very first time. So now that I am in week two of the second year and getting to do things for the second time, I realize how much easier it will be. But it's been a great first year.
0: That's great. What were what were some of the things that you learned, things maybe that surprised you uh, after you know coming into the job for the first time?
1: I had always had this mythology built up of Loyola students being this incredibly tight-knit community. Um, who are happy and talented and spend time with each other. And I thought, well, that can't be literally true. So I spent a lot of time talking to students of, is, is this in fact true? Do you all, are you friends with each other across lines of difference? Do you get along this well? And it really is true. So that was a delightful surprise. It lived up to my hopes.
0: That's great. Were there any, any challenges in the job that you might not have been expecting?
1: They did such a good job, the board and the search committee, of warning me of every single challenge and banking on my uh, sense of Catholic guilt and obligation to take the job anyway that I really don't think I was surprised by anything. But uh, we definitely, um, universities our size uh, that are focused not exclusively, but on liberal arts that are Catholic, are, are struggling across the country. There's a real change in the nature of the higher ed industry. And so we have been going through a, a tough few years. And I came in at the tail end of that working with a, a lot of um, great work that was done before I got here. But we have been in the process of balancing the budget, which we did this year, we delivered a balanced budget of restoring our admission success, um, and all of that went really well. We brought in a class this year that is ten percent bigger than last year's class and is the most diverse uh, in our history.
0: Wow, that's great! So those are just some of the concerns uh, on your mind of a president and all leadership and in higher ed. What what does the the Typical, I'm sure there's no typical day for a university president, but what are some of the, the things that kind of make up uh, your life in this role?
1: Well, one of the things I love about it is that there's no typical day. So having every day be different is most people's idea of health, but I actually <laughs> really enjoy that. Um, so you have all these different constituencies to talk to, students, faculty, staff, um, the leadership team you bring together, but also alumni the local community. And so it's a lot of um, pivoting back and forth between those groups of saying the same thing but targeting it in a slightly different way um, and just being aware of uh, keeping your hand on all the wheels.
0: Sure. So this, again, it's... The first time you have served in in this particular role at a university, I'm really interested in your path uh, to Loyola in this role. So your your roots in in employment were as a federal prosecutor and and then kind of making that that pivot into higher education. So could you just tell us a little bit about that career shift for you?
1: Sure. I um, practiced law for about 10 years uh, as a commercial lawyer and then a prosecutor. And I've been teaching law on the side actually here at Loyola. For fun, which is, and writing law review articles for fun, which is not normal, and decided ultimately to apply for a job at Tulane Law School next door. And I was on the faculty there for about 10 years, doing um, writing and teaching, but also running a domestic violence clinic. So I got to feel still part of mattering uh, in the world of policy and police reforms and all sorts of things I care about. Um, And then uh, the president of Tulane. Mike Fitz, who is himself a law professor and former law dean, um, asked me to be his chief of staff. I think he feels very comfortable with other law professors. So I got to translate law professor to the university for him. Um, and it was this great training. It's not a typical stepping stone to a presidency, but you get to see the full scope of the job. You're Normally, you come as a dean of a particular school or as provost where you've overseen the academic part. But I really got to straddle finances, facilities, athletics, along with academics, and um, the kind of day-to-day crisis management the presidents do. So uh, he was very encouraging that I should apply for this. And since every member of my family other than me went to or worked at Loyola, it just seemed like a perfect fit.
0: Yeah, I want to get into that a little bit. So Loyola is is new for you in terms of your, again, your role there, but it's it's, uh, not an unfamiliar place.
1: No. I literally grew up here. I was in a room full of Jesuits for the province day and I asked for a show of hands of how many of them have known me since birth and a fair number went up. So (laughs) I feel very at home here.
0: Yeah. So talk about some of those connections.
1: um, My grandfather came here in 1928 on a football scholarship and met my grandmother. And so Loyola is in some ways, the reason I exist. Um, and then uh, many of his kids went to Loyola. My dad taught here. Uh, my mom went to law school here at night. My uncle, Joe Tetlow, who's a Jesuit, um, was the dean in 1970. And uh, pretty much everyone in my family has had some ties to the place.
0: So you come back to this familiar place, but in quite a different role. What were some of the things from your your past career, some lessons you think that, that help in the administration of a, a university?
1: Well, certainly um, the administrative work I've done and then being a commercial litigator before that have helped really understanding the financial systems of how you get at truth from boxes of spreadsheets. Um, I think the... Domestic Violence Clinic helped me in an odd way of uh, because of dealing with abusers of spotting narcissists and knowing how to handle them in the workplace, which helps. Um, I a lot of the work I've done around violence against women is sadly very relevant in any university setting because we are all grappling with those issues. And um, I think being a lawyer and a law professor is great training for the role of taking in lots of data, of trying to seek it out, but then quickly deciding what's relevant and what is noise. And since a lot of this job is about making decisions with oh. imperfect information, um, it has it has helped a great deal.
0: So you bring that unique professional background, your family history, and also you're the first lay and female president in New Orleans history. When you realize that this was going to happen and you're preparing to be uh, inaugurated, what were some of the things going through your mind to think about kind of this historic role for you?
1: Well, it's hard to tell which is the most uh, representative of change between being lay person and female. Um, I think as the first lay person, I grew up in a family full of Jesuit priests, and my father actually was a Jesuit for 17 years before he decided to leave and have a family. So, I got the training from birth, and I grew up thinking of every Jesuit as a vague uncle with the perfect ability to uh, tell me what to do and lead me on a wise path. So, I, one thing that really helped, I think, is the sense of this Jesuit community that they believed in me, that I know them, that I understand them, that I live their values. And so, that has been a real opportunity to describe in every speech. Um, what those values are of what the Jesuit order has accomplished during the last 500 years of what they stand for. And in some ways, the Jesuits tell me they think that people maybe listen, they hear it differently from me, because when they say it, it feels like they have to say it. But for me, that maybe people take it in a little differently. And that's a real opportunity that I've taken very seriously. Um, is, and of reminding people that mission isn't something that we ask of the dozen priests on our campus. It's the responsibility of each and every one of us. Um, as a woman, it's harder to know how it plays out. But I do think that when you have a an institutional history of servant leadership, that that's what is expected, that the ways that women are perceived and trained can suit that. Um, but it it has been nice when students, male or female, get very excited about me as just representative of Of change and of opportunity and that they can, their picture forever more of what a university president looks like is different.
0: Sure. Have you felt a certain pressure this year or acceptance or just a mix of all kinds of things?
1: I have felt incredible support. I have never had so many people praying for me in my entire life. I get told that every day. And um, no, this is because I think we've had a couple of hard years, um, there's a real sense of hope and of wanting me to succeed, of wanting us to succeed together, and of feeling like while I come in as an outsider with fresh perspectives and new energy, I'm still somebody who knows them very well, that I I came from literally two feet away because Tulane's campus is on the border of Loyola's campus. Um, And I'm also a native of New Orleans, so I know so many of them so well. So I've had just uh, you know high expectations but also amazing levels of support. Nobody's sitting there and waiting for me to stumble.
0: Oh that's great. And I know that the uh, the, the superior general uh, Father Sosa of the Jesuit order talks about how Jesuits don't have collaborators who are lay people. Jesuits are collaborators that we are. I think yes. as a fellow lay person working with Jesuits, feel like they're really trying to, to kind of push that as times change. And there are fewer Jesuits than, than there were several generations ago. And so how do you know we partner with Jesuits to help carry forward legacies of Ignatian spirituality and uh, education and all the things that make Jesuits who they are and that we can feel as you know equal partners in that work. And I think that's so important for us going forward. Uh, so for you coming from Tulane and having deep connections there, I'm sure a, a great Love of that institution and and Loyola as well. What, from your perspective, makes Loyola as a Jesuit institution unique?
1: Well, among the Jesuit institutions, I think that one thing that really stands out is our uh, commitment to creativity and innovation. Um, I think that's a function of being in New Orleans, but we have uniquely a college of music and media, I'm sitting in it right now, where um, we have rooms full of uh, recording studios and a broadcast news studio. We have historic strengths in journalism and music and design, and now more and more in music industries. Um, but the, the the innovation, the driving creativity of New Orleans really infects what Loyola is and vice versa, that Loyola has been a kind of quiet backbone of the music industry here in the city for a very long time. So that um, we feel everywhere. It's how the business school teaches entrepreneurship. It's the way the uh, English program has students doing creative writing and editing actual books that are published. Um, It's this very experiential learning, but a willingness to think outside the box.
0: What about the, the Jesuit identity of the school do you think is part of your pitch to potential students or, or others who wanted to be connected with the school? Um, what, what about that, again, makes it different from some other places?
1: Well, I pitch to students um, the idea that for, for so many of them in this generation, they really want to change systems, to make the world a better place, not just by being personally virtuous, not just by volunteering, but by questioning the way things have always been done and trying to make them better. And that is so Jesuit, and I really think it fits so much of the impetus of this particular generation. So I think it's our job to help them understand that, of what it means um, to be part of a tradition that even with Ignatius in the 1500s in the middle of the Inquisition when they were burning heretics at the stake, that his central principles were about listening to people with whom you disagree, about having an openness to different ideas of being willing to question authority and finding clever ways to um, be strategic and to change the world. And I think that uh, we really can make clear to these students how much that's exactly what they're seeking.
0: Yeah. It seems to me that Ignatian spirituality and the way of approaching the world is relevant, has a lot to offer, even if things go back centuries, that there are things that can be applied now to kind of facing problems that are before us.
1: Exactly. And there's, I love reading about so much of of Jesuit ideas, both of leadership and organization, but also about higher ed, um, where We've all come around to the truth of those ideas about how you teach, about how you run universities in the last couple of decades, but um, they've been doing it for 500 years.
0: Sure. So you mentioned earlier that higher ed in the U.S. is in this kind of period of challenge and transition. You, you mentioned balancing budgets and working on in- increasing enrollment, and I think these are questions that are being asked by university leaders throughout the country. You know, how do we how do we do this? What what does this Era calling for. So, I guess I'm wondering, like, what are some of those really important questions you think leaders of colleges and universities should be asking right now?
1: Well, we're all grappling with the fact that there are just fewer students now than there used to be. So, there's a lot of disruption in the industry, which means that none of us can afford to have waste, that we can't afford to sit on our laurels and just do things the way we've always done them. I think this is a good time for the Jesuit principle of indifference of giving up your attachment to the way you've always done things. Um, And that we increasingly have to answer the question of of the return on investment for students that when our um, families come to us and scrimp and save and make the biggest investment often of their lives in paying tuition to come to one of our universities, that we do everything we can to prepare them, to prepare the whole person, and to have a sense of how we best situate them to have meaningful lives and careers going forward. And for us, that's not just about jobs and earning power, it's about much more than that, but that it is our responsibility to really help make that right. And that's at a time when tuition is increasing that we're all also having to increase financial aid and to find ways to afford that. And to bridge the gap between the excellence that our students really deserve and what it, and what they can afford to pay.
0: How do you think you bridge that gap?
1: Well, uh, it's a variety of things right now. In some ways, it's about diversifying revenue. So we find other sources of revenue um, and whether that's continuing education, professional training here locally. We're doing more and more of that, um, of finding ways uh, – because we're in New Orleans, for example, we often rent our campus for filming movies, which is a lot of fun for the film students too. Um, But also of finding ways that we can open our doors more widely, reach out to more students like adult learners. So we are doing online as is a lot of higher ed of, of figuring out that market of people who didn't finish their bachelors by 25, but who may be very close and need help to get it done. Um, And then it's finding ways that you position yourself where you provide that need-based aid, but when it comes to the need to use merit scholarships to attract students who could afford to pay more, the better your reputation, um, the more students are willing to pay to come to you. And so that we have um, of, of that, of how we persuade them of the excellence of what we do.
0: And you mentioned some of those things before about how you persuade, what are some of the things you lead with? How do you see Loyola positioning within that greater higher ed landscape? What, what is, again, uh, at the heart of uh, of your pitch?
1: It's a few things. It's the incredible diversity of this campus, which mirrors the demographics of their generation exactly. And that's a very exciting place to be. So it's where the incoming class is 55% students of color. They're 30% first in their family to go to college. They are um, from 46 states and 16 countries. So they get to come to a place where they get to interact with the world. Um, and then it's about that Jesuit mission I talked about of of knowing how to matter, to push on systems, to make them better, combined with the creativity of New Orleans.
0: When you're working with so many students who are first in their families uh, to to come to college, what are some of the things like the essential supports uh, in place to to kind of help that transition work?
1: Well, we have some things particularly for them, like a group called First in the Pack. We are the Wolf Pack. And so uh, I see students proudly wearing those t-shirts the fact that we have so many of them um, and have had for the entire history of Loyola of first generation students means that it's not a source of embarrassment it's a source of enormous pride and we keep it that way it's a it's something we brag about all the time um and then we've done things like having um Trained success coaches. So these are members of our community who get trained as volunteers, really, to help students, to work with them one on one, and to help them not um, by solving problems for them, but by teaching them how to solve problems. So things that you might have a helicopter parent do for you, um, if you don't have that kind of input or you don't have parents who've been through the college experience that so they just don't have as much that they inherently know about how it works, um, that we help you figure out how to not run out of meal swipes at the end of the semester of how to figure out an issue you're having with registering for classes um, and, and do it in a way that helps you learn how to solve those problems. So at first we offered those to the students, um, we thought might be most at risk. Now we offer it to every student.
0: Hmm. I'm, I'm thinking too about one of those figures you shared with, was it over 50% of students, uh, students of color, and thinking of this time in our country that is so divided and, you know, big questions of, of racism and how do we become anti-racist and work to kind of dismantle some of those systems come up and questions about, is it possible to you know build these communities of unity within diversity Right now, it seems to me then that Loyola has a great chance to kind of model how, you know, we we might be able to go forward and build these communities um, of unity, again, within and using thinking of our diversity as a strength. Do you feel like that is a part right. of um, the Loyola experience?
1: I do. And if you were to try to build that from scratch, you would really struggle. Um, But there is this magic of this community where it is incredibly diverse in a way that makes it much easier for people to feel comfortable bridging those lines of difference because they aren't coming to a place where there are three people just like them and they feel like they've got to cling to the handful of folks who understand their experience, that there is such diversity um, that when I walk through The dining hall, it's not just that the whole room is diverse, it's that each table is diverse, that students do reach out across that difference. And that is a constant message that we have to them is they will learn as much from each other as they learn from us, and that the culture of our place, and this is core to Jesuit mission, is that we listen to each other with open minds and open hearts, and that we can reach out across ideological differences, partisan differences, and learn from each other. And that is the whole secret to life, right? And at this moment when the country is really cleaving into tribes and kind of drowning in polemic, it gives me so much hope to walk across campus because this really is a special place. We have a a poll in Princeton Review that asked students at 380 universities around the country of how much interaction they had across lines of race and class and how inclusive the community felt. And we, um, for a couple of years in a row, have been in the top 20.
0: You you mentioned that it's kind of hard to start that from scratch, but from getting to know that community and that hallmark uh, attribute of of Loyola, are there anything you could share with other leaders working in higher ed communities uh, that are working to try to build those those types of bonds, like what are some of the important ingredients that that make that possible? There,
1: well, some of it is just the the numbers, and if you don't have them, it's sometimes hard to persuade students to come to a place where they will feel lonely. So that's the progress, hard to jumpstart. But I do think you hit a tipping point, and just in the last few years at Loyola New Orleans, um, we've we've been able to greatly increase our diversity, where we really do match that of eighteen year old America. Um, but, I, uh, and some of those were strategic efforts like Hispanic students often come through the, the admissions tour with parents or grandparents whose Spanish is much better than their English. So we have tour guides who can speak Spanish. We have financial aid counselors who can talk to the parents in Spanish. So they're not trying to muddle through an already complicated process in a second language or a third language, um, of just being very, purposeful in our messaging. Um, But then I think it's about all of the ways that through student affairs, through campus ministry, through every message from the top, that it's this drumbeat of inclusion and respect. And um, it is, when you have that and can reward it and point to it all the time, I think it's, it's a fragile thing that needs protecting. If you don't have it, I don't have all the answers of how you create it. It's very hard.
0: You described earlier this time of polemic and divide and, and maybe a university's role in kind of healing some of that. It reminded me of an article that was published earlier this summer in America Magazine, uh, written by the political journalist uh, Cokie Roberts. It was uh, <laughs> titled, How My Mother Helped Mentor the First Female President of Loyola New Orleans, Loyola University New Orleans. So Cokie Roberts' mother, uh, Lindy Boggs, was the, the first woman to serve in Congress from the state of Louisiana and someone who you know, had relationships and connections, you know, with all kinds of people in her political career. Um, Just maybe, could you talk a little bit about uh, the Congresswoman and and how her kind of leadership, her trailblazing kind of uh, helped prepare you for your work now?
1: Sure. Um, So she was my Congresswoman growing up, and I... Used to always tell people when asked as a kid that I wanted to be Lindy Boggs when I grew up. So when I was 16, I wrote her a letter at her congressional office and said, I want to be you when I grow up. Could I possibly meet you? And they scheduled a meeting for me, and that turned into later an internship. And ultimately, when um, she retired from Congress, which was hardly a retirement, but she did step back from Congress, she um, uh, came to Tulane they gave her an office and I thought she would have some massive staff that I could be a student worker for but it turned out that she didn't have a staff she got me as a part-time 19 year old which was probably pretty tough for her but was really great for me Um, I learned so many things she was an incredibly devout Catholic absolutely brilliant uh, amazing diplomat Um, she taught me how to be virtuous and to live your faith in the world, not by withdrawing from it and keeping yourself pure, but by engaging with power every day and and mattering. Um, she taught me lots of diplomatic skills, some of which I won't be able to use till I'm in my old age like she was, because she was, for example, the ambassador to the Vatican, and she would go in Rome and have to have difficult diplomatic conversations with the cardinals who run the Vatican. And she would do it by flirting like a banshee with them, which you can do when you're in your 80s. (laughs) Um, And they loved it. We used to tease her that every picture she had of Pope John Paul II, he was holding her hand, she would blush and say there was nothing going on between us.
0: (laughs) So uh, as your second year gets started, what are some of the things you're most looking forward to?
1: Oh, of just the comfort of doing everything for the second time. It's a little uh, calmer, and I know where to go and who to talk to, um, of finding ways beyond the immediate sort of picking a team and um, learning all the details of being able to settle in and starting to execute a plan, um, of working with the leadership team that's now complete um, and which is a great mix of people who have been here forever and, and new people who come with their new perspectives. And um, of just doing right by this place, it is an amazing place, and I just want to give it um, healthier margins of, of more seed money for everything we want to do and to invest in making us the same, only better.
0: So as we get to the end of our conversation, I want to do some more fun get-to-know-you things, uh, President Tetlow. So, uh, two quick ones before we get into a rapid-fire twenty. First, I, I have a friend who attended Loyola New Orleans and was involved with a, a choir that sang uh, at the church there, and said you would often be in that group. So, are you? You are. You mentioned the music program there at Loyola. Are you yourself a musician?
1: I am myself secretly a <laughs> musician. Yes. So And I can I can let you in on a secret that they'll all find out soon enough, but we're gonna have our Mass of the Holy Spirit um, next week. And I'm gonna secretly come join the choir and sing a solo and see how everyone reacts.
0: Oh, excellent. That sounds good. Are you formally trained in music or is this just more of an avocation for you?
1: Um, I no, I've I've taken voice lessons off and on my whole life and um and have worked professionally on the side a little bit here and there. But if nothing else, I sing really well for a university president. Yeah,
0: right. No, that's excellent. I'm sure in the top, what, the top couple percent, Uh, (laughs) certainly.
1: The low standard. Right, right.
0: Uh, Okay, so another, uh, some more research I did. I I did email your uncle, Father Joe Tetlow, who's kind of a a master of Ignatian spirituality. And I said, do you have any dirt on your niece that I can ask her about? Uh, And he was, you know, very... Um, very kind. I, so he wrote, yeah, he wrote this and I'll ask <laughs> you, I don't know what, what this is about, but he said, uh, some say that in the past, uh, Loyola students had created their own Mardi Gras parade. Would you think that a good idea?
1: <laughs> well, I think that he's probably referring to something that happened when he was Dean 50 years ago here at Loyola. Um, a bunch of Loyola students started a crew called Tux. Um, which still exists and marches every year and is a particularly irreverent crew that I don't know would pass total muster with the Archbishop. But um, I, I can tell you that I think that Loyola students and faculty um, participate in Mardi Gras more than you can possibly know. I just found out that one of our deans just joined a men's dancing crew of some renown. So... <laughs>
0: Well, it wouldn't be New Orleans. I think it is a great
1: idea. Exactly.
0: (laughs) Okay, great. So this brings us to a section of the program we call 20 questions. These are 20 rapid fire get to know you questions. I will not ask you any follow up. Uh, Are you ready? Okay. Yes. Okay. Number one, what are you reading?
1: Uh, Zora Neale Hurston's Barracoon.
0: Number two, what is the best gift you've ever received?
1: Unprompted I love you's from my 14 year old stepson.
0: Number three, your favorite saint? Teresa of Avila. Number four, your first job? Working for Lindy Boggs. Number five, two weeks in Paris or 10 minutes on the moon? The moon. Number six, your at least favorite chore?
1: Putting the trash cans out because I always forget.
0: Number seven, if you could uninvent one thing, what would it be?
1: 24-hour cable news.
0: Number eight, your favorite sound?
1: My daughter's laughter.
0: Number nine, your favorite hymn. O oh, to joy. Number 10, your favorite zoo animal.
1: The orangutan.
0: Number 11, what superpower would you most want to have?
1: I talked about this at great length with my seven-year-old, but we decided teleporting anywhere.
0: Number 12, what's the best thing you cook? Gumbo. Number 13, if you were ruler of your own country, what would be the first law you would introduce?
1: creating a child protective system.
0: Number 14, what current or past music group would you most want to join?
1: To be the backup singer for Aretha.
0: Number 15, what is one thing you will never do again?
1: So many things, but nothing I want to say publicly.
0: (laughs) Number 16, you have the chance to meet Pope Francis one-on-one, but you only get one sentence. What do you say?
1: So if I had longer, I'd spend it all thanking him. But if I had one sentence, it would be the following run-on sentence. Please remember the women. Jesus did so much to include both halves of humanity at a time when that was radical, preaching outside of the synagogue so women could hear, choosing them to first reveal himself after his resurrection. The church should not let him down.
0: Number 17. What could you give a 45-minute presentation on with no preparation?
1: Well, as a lawyer, I can talk about most subjects endlessly, but uh, domestic violence and child abuse are the root of most violent crime.
0: Number 18, what's one thing you want to try you haven't gotten around to yet?
1: I oddly really want to go on Fresh Air podcast.
0: Number 19, what dumb accomplishment are you most proud of?
1: I am an epic parallel parker.
0: Number 20, what makes you feel alive?
1: Singing opera.
0: All right. Well, you've completed 20 questions, President Tanya Tetlow, and this is not fresh air, but it is AMBG (laughs) and we're on our way. So thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us today and uh, best of luck for uh, this upcoming academic year.
1: Thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun.
0: AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Doris Sump, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org. We're on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at we Are the Jesuits and facebook.com slash Jesuits. If you or someone you know is interested in discerning a vocation to join the Jesuits, visit us at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.